As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Taken by surprise, first by the order to evacuate. I felt like everything I knew was gone like that. Then by insurance denials for a condo building on the brink of collapse. I'm incredulous as to the, the lack of any compassion. Also, it's a top consumer concern, unexpected medical bills. They made it sound like the member was the responsible person. The broad new protections that should mean no more surprises. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm joined this week by Contact 6's Jenna Sachs. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, February 23rd for release on Thursday, February 24th. We have a couple of stories to talk about today that involve some unpleasant surprises. The first, a condominium complex that had to be evacuated. What happened there? Well, this got a lot of coverage when it became an issue back in December. So what happened is on the evening of December 2nd, while families in the Horizon West condominiums were settling down for the night, some were making dinner, some were getting ready for bed, they got a knock on the door and police were going door to door in their building, telling the owners of these condo units that they had just 30 minutes to pack up all their stuff and leave. Some were told, pack as if you're never coming back. And it's very alarming news to get seemingly out of the blue. Residents had no idea how long they would be gone or whether they'd ever be able to come back. And what they were told is their building was in danger of collapsing. So engineers had taken a closer look at their building and they had found significant degradation and rusting in all of its structural steel columns. I've been through all of these reports from the engineers and the fire inspectors and the pictures and the details are really quite alarming. You look at some of these pictures and the columns are literally crumbling. So they had to get out of the building and they were not able to go back. Uh, Families were given three hours at some point to go back in and get their belongings, but they've had to find new places to live. They've had to find apartments. They've bought new houses. And the reason we did this report as consumer reporters is that The financial implications of losing your home to a building that is in danger of collapsing and has been condemned um, is really hard to overcome. So these these families are, are having a really hard time, especially when it comes to insurance coverage. And that's something we highlighted in this report. There are so many layers to this. And I think, first of all, about that just shock and trauma of someone coming in saying, you've got 30 minutes, get out. On the one hand, there's the fear that your building's about to collapse because people don't tell you to get out quickly unless this is imminent. So first, there's a fear that we might die. We need to get out. But then secondly, 
we suddenly have to get as much as we can. That old exercise, people always say, if you, if you had to get out of your house quickly, what would you grab? What do you do in 30 minutes? Um, and, and then on top of all of that, then you find out the sort of financial fallout of this. I imagine one of the real complicating factors here is unlike an apartment complex where you are merely renting, this is a condominium situation where you are an owner, a part owner, I guess, of that, that whole property. Yes, I, I spoke with people, I spoke with several people who own units in this building. They said the value of their condos was between $120,000, $150,000, and that could be a total loss for them if they don't secure some sort of insurance coverage. So they're, they're facing an uphill battle right now, and they really don't know what the future holds. But you mentioned, how do you even react in that moment? I spoke with the nicest couple, Beth and Scott Hostrader, and they said they took a moment they prayed and then they grabbed laundry baskets and they filled them up as much as they could uh, before leaving the building. And they had to spend several nights in a Red Cross shelter uh, before they found a new apartment in McGuanago. And now they're paying for a mortgage and they're paying for rent for an apartment and they're paying for several other things as well. So did they know so they, they're, they have, I assume, a mortgage on this condo? And, and they make payments on that. When they bought that condominium, did they have any idea what the condition of this place was or that it was literally crumbling from the inside? This came as quite the shock to them. They'd lived in that building for 14 years. They bought that unit because uh, one of them has cerebral palsy and she thought about, Beth thought about aging in place. There was an elevator. They could walk to a lot of places nearby. They liked that it was near the library. They liked that they could walk to the downtown and through the parks. And they were very happy living there. And I think when we watch this story on the news, we see the crumbling building. We see all the tape around it. And you think that looks awful. But we have to remember there were people who had very happy homes, nice units inside this building. And they lost everything. And they had assumed insurance would cover quite a bit of it, and they found out in many cases it would not. Well, in a lot of cases where we hear about tragedies and someone is left with nothing, there's that question, did they have insurance? They didn't. These were people who had insurance. They were doing what they thought was the right thing to protect themselves. Why didn't insurance cover this? I have a letter that Beth received from her insurer, and it seems to be what a lot of people were told. They were told that because... There was no event or uh, no incident that triggered coverage that their their home and their belongings would not be covered. For example, their building did not fall down. It was in danger of falling down. If this building had collapsed, they likely would have received coverage. If they had dealt with a flood or a lightning strike or a fire, that would be an incident or an event to trigger coverage. But because that building is still standing, Uh, unless it falls down on its own, they've been told that their individual units will not be covered. We actually sent out a survey to owners in the Horizon West building, and I was really overwhelmed by the response because more than 20 people responded to our survey, and there's only 48 units in the building. So quite a few people responded. And they basically all said that they were disappointed in their insurance coverage. Some had gotten some insurance for moving expenses. Some had gotten extended stays in hotels covered, um, maybe some moving costs, but their units were not being covered. And in addition to that, they outlined other things that they have to pay for right now. They have HOA fees still. They have property taxes. 
still, although those are being reassessed, which might bring that down, obviously. They're paying for new mortgages, new rent. They're paying for insurance still. Uh, former special assessments on the building. If you look at the building, you'll see it's missing a lot of balconies because they had paid something like $13,000 each to remove their balconies after they were found to be dangerous prior to the building being condemned. They pay for storage units, moving costs, and there's a raise order on the building that their attorney for the condo association estimates will cost them upwards of a million dollars or more. That'll be an additional cost divided between all of those unit owners. So they meet regularly, uh, maybe once a month. They go over the latest with their attorney and what their options are. And one thing they're talking about a lot right now is insurance. There, <laughs> there is a master policy for the entire building um, that the condo association has. And that's something that has not resulted in any coverage yet either. Maybe there will be a battle over that at some point. Um, but they're also talking a lot about this raise order right now and what their legal steps are trying to hold that up until they decide whether or not this building can be repaired, which is a whole other whole other issue. Well, the, just the idea that and I, I guess it makes sense when you think about insurance coverage. Usually something happens that triggers a claim. You crash your car, you have a fire, something happens that triggers a claim. In this case, there was a preventative measure taken when they were told to evacuate so it didn't collapse with them inside. I mean, it's hard to talk about this story without thinking about what happened in Florida uh, with the condominium that collapsed. We've all seen that video. It's tragic. You know, 90-something people died in that collapse. So, obviously, the first order of business is make sure nobody dies in a building collapse. But yet, ironically, had the building collapsed and maybe they weren't at home when it happened, they would have been better off financially. That's true. They've made jokes with me about how they're all going to go stand outside the building and, and blow on it in hopes that it, it falls down. Um, but the reality is, I mean, they're grateful that that building didn't fall down with them inside it. Let's not kid about that for a second, because that has happened tragically in other places. Um, but when it comes to money, when it comes to insurance, that building has to fall down on its own to be considered an event, and raising it is not the same thing. So the financial implications are huge. Do you know if the, I mean, obviously that Florida condo collapse caught everybody's attention. Did that have anything to do with this evacuation? Were there people saying we can't let what happened there happen here? I think it was on a lot of people's minds. It's not reflected in any of the reports I've read from that night because Waukesha did launch an emergency response. They got a team together and they figured out where these people were going to go, what the steps were going to be for, for getting them out. It was a major incident response that night that they had to jump in and do immediately. Um, and I spoke with the city administrator about that quite a bit off camera, but he said, you know, this we did this to save lives. And that was our top priority was, was saving people's lives and getting them out of a dangerous building. And he says that's also the reason there's a raise order right now, because the building uh, is not safe in the long term. So there's no way this can be repaired and they can get back in? Well, that's one thing the condo association's attorney wants to figure out first. He has advised them to bring in an engineer who will assess the building and give them a firm estimate of what it will cost to repair their building. And the decision they have to make after they get that number is whether it's worth fixing the building. You know, it has to be it has to be less than the value of their units, really. There are scenarios where maybe they could bring someone in to fix it and then sell to someone else who might 
you know, fix up the whole building and start all over. Uh, but the city is under the assumption that it would be very difficult to repair this building because not only is there significant structural damage, this building is more than 50 years old, and that means there's a lot of asbestos. So they would have to go in and fix the asbestos issue as well, and those costs would have been tremendous. So it's the, the, the assumption is that it's too expensive to repair, but the condo association, if they send in an engineer, is going to find out for themselves whether that's the case. Jen, I've said this over and over again on this podcast that one of the things I love about this format is our ability to expand and expound upon things that we weren't able to talk about in depth in a a two or three or four minute story on television. And I know in this case, you had so much information. You talked to so many people. There are things you just couldn't put on television. What really stands out? What are things that you wish you'd had more time to, to dive into? Well, I wish I'd been able to talk about the fact that several people tell me they're already making plans for bankruptcy. Their future is likely leading toward bankruptcy unless this building can be repaired cost effectively. Uh, And the people I spoke with, Beth and Scott, I spoke with another gentleman, Chris Adler, who lost his unit as well. They were really good interviews and they said so many amazing things about their experience and about their reaction to what insurance is covering and what it isn't that I would have liked to include a lot more of it because I think I could have listened to them talk for 20 minutes straight about what it was like leaving that building and the challenges they faced since then and and what their future looks like. We sat there and we went through all of their bills and all of these fees that they're paying and I, I always want more time to really draw people in and explain, you know, how difficult and, and challenging the situation is. Chris Adler told me he stands to lose about $200,000 in the end because his unit was, was paid off. Um, and he was lucky. He said he had a Cadillac of an, an insurance policy, so they covered two months in a hotel. And then when I spoke with him, he was about to um, lose that funding. But, you know, I... There's a lot of little things. They all seem important to me. Well, they're certainly important to to all of those who've been through this. I mean, I think about, you talk about losing $200,000, that's retirement. I mean, that's a life savings. It, it is. That's that's a huge amount of money for anybody. And it's it's more than the value of their homes. And I think that's one reason they're kind of taking it slow with the raise order and seeing what options they have. Because... If if there are other opportunities for them to file an insurance claim, if there if there's something that can be done to improve their financial situation, they probably have to figure that out before the building is raised. I I wonder on the front end, is there something that people can do? Going, you know, you're going to buy a condo. Maybe it's an older building. Do you just have to be more diligent about looking up old inspections, or is there a type of policy that might cover? a forced evacuation. I mean, is there something you can do to protect yourself from this happening to you? Even those in this building who had really good insurance policies aren't getting the coverage they really want for the unit. And I think you have to understand that condo insurance does have limitations. And this event is out of the ordinary. I mean, it's not normal for a building um, to be evacuated for this reason. And insurance companies have told these these unit owners, we've never dealt with this before. This is so unusual, so rare. But at the same time, condo so condo um, insurance doesn't cover everything. Neither does home insurance. And nobody wants to read through all of those pages in the booklet they give you when you get your insurance and the changes that happen every year. 
And sometimes you don't even know what you're looking for when you're reading the, the policy. You, know, you never know what's going to happen to you and what might be covered or what won't. Um, and in those cases, I guess, contact six is here. We've done so many insurance stories in the past. And um, not just about this story, but, you know, animal issues. Oh, my gosh, so many insurance stories. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you should understand that there are some serious limitations to your coverage. Speaking of surprises and surprise bills, you have done a lot of stories over the years about surprise medical bills, Jenna. You did another one here recently, but it may be the last of its kind, uh, hopefully anyway. Tell us about that. Right. Well, it's it's a top consumer complaint in Wisconsin, and I'm talking about surprise medical bills. Sometimes you hear it called balance billing, and Contact 6 consistently over the years has gotten quite a few complaints about surprise and balance bills. And we've been able to resolve some of them, but usually on certain technicalities or little things that the insurer did or didn't do. Um, but there is some new legislation that was passed. It went into effect in January that offers consumers some pretty broad protections when it comes to surprise bills. And some examples of these bills might be when you have an emergency and you need to go to the nearest care provider and you're not checking whether or not they are in network or out of network, you just need that care. Um, or if you're taken by an air ambulance somewhere unexpectedly, uh, a scenario that we hear about a lot at Contact 6 is when people go to an in-network facility and then find out at some point that one of the people involved in their care was out of network. Let's say you're you're having a baby and your doctor is in network, but you find out the anesthesiologist was not afterward. The woman we featured in our story has been having the same wellness visit for 20 years. And this time she got a bill afterwards for more than $400. And it turns out the radiologist who read her mammogram was out of network. This had never happened to her before. She never met the radiologist. She never thought to ask about that part of the appointment. And yet here was this bill. And she had her appointment in August. So that was before this law went into effect. So she was not automatically covered. Her scenario is exactly what the No Surprises Act is meant to prevent. What does it, what exactly does that act cover then? I mean, because I, on the one hand, I totally get I mean, if you go to someone who's in network or a provider that's in network, you've made all the right choices to make sure you're covered, then you have no control over whether the anesthesiologist comes from out of your network. That is a surprise. It doesn't feel like it's your fault. There's other cases where you know who you're in a network, in, in and out of network providers are. You go to the wrong one. That seems like maybe that's on you. What does this actually cover? It's hard to go through individual scenarios, but basically it involves any case where the consumer would not reasonably have had the ability to ask or thought to ask whether a service is in network or not. If you're having an emergency, you are not always in a state or your family might not be in the right mindset to ask, is this in network? The answer might not even matter in that kind of situation. Um, you should still be trying to go to an in-network provider, even with this bill. But the difference is if you're opting for out-of-network care, you are entitled to have the documentation up front explaining what your out-of-network costs will be, and you should agree in advance to that care. An example might be if you need a very specific sur surgery done or a procedure done, and you want to go to the best doctor for you, and that person is out of network, you can still opt to go with that person under this bill and pay more. But if 
that that's up to you, right? So this is meant to protect people in the cases where either they can't ask, they didn't have time to ask, or they would not reasonably have thought to ask about that part of their care. Will will this completely eliminate out-of-network bills, or are people still going to continue to get those in certain circumstances? People will still get out-of-network bills, but in fewer circumstances. Again, I think we might occasionally get one from now on, but I think most of the scenarios where people reach out to us are going to be covered by this bill. It's going to be debated by a panel of people from insurance in the hospital um, before it even arrives to the consumer in the mail. Um, But yeah, some people will still get them, but the difference is that you should be notified in advance and you should have agreed to the out-of-network bill in advance. It's definitely a confusing and tricky area when you when you have medical claims and EOBs and there's a lot of terminology that means a lot to the insurance and medical billing industry. But when you don't go through this until there's that thing you face, it can be a very confusing thing to navigate. And I know you've been navigating that for a lot of people over the years. Yeah. You know, I've, I, I know people, too, who have gone in to have a baby and then got a huge bill afterward because they found out that the person who gave them their epidural wasn't covered. And when you're in labor, you just aren't thinking about that. So I think this accounts for the human side of things a little bit more. I should stay, say that you still have to pay deductibles. You know, the out-of-pocket costs still apply. And if you had Medicare or Medicaid, you already had these protections in place. But this is more for private and self-funded insurance plans, bringing those um, to the same level as the care um, and the costs for Medicaid and Medicare patients. Sorry, one more thing, because you know how you can't include everything in the story. Again, um, this doesn't cover ground ambulances yet. That's a big part of it. Um, I'm told there's a, a, a federal committee that's being put together to look into that part of billing and come up with some recommendations there. Surprise ambulance bills. Yes, because we get a few of those as well. I've done stories about surprise ambulance bills in the past. So that is not covered by the No Surprises Act. So we'll have to watch and see if there are some changes coming with that down the road because they are looking at it. I sense some future context stories on that subject. That would be a fair bet to make. And that's as good a time as any for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared and the theme of of this podcast. We'll call that a surprise question. And here to ask us that question, once again, executive producer Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Surprise. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> wait, hold on. <laughs> okay, this is going to derail, and this is why the podcast goes long. Um, I have a joke for you. Um, what did the janitor say when it jumped out of the closet? I think I've, I should know this one because I'm the dad joke king. I should know. Wait. Uh, oh, I don't know. Tell me. What is it? Supplies. Supplies. Yeah, I've heard that. Okay, that's good. Anyway, okay. Not not really the point of anything. Okay, so the question for today is, this got me with all the winter weather and people driving kind of nutty. What is your biggest pet peeve of how others drive? Like just general others on the road or like others that I know? No, just others. Okay. People that are sharing the road with you. I, you know, it's changed over the years because I I used to be more of a I'm in a hurry, not aggressive driver, but like I was like, you know, the kind of guy who would pound on my steering wheel sort of passive aggressively because I was angry that the person now I'm the opposite. I'm the one who's irritated at the people behind me who are in such a hurry. And 
I'm like, get, get off my tail. Just go, please. And I'll, I'll, I'll do the whole pull over to the shoulder to let them go by because I just don't have time for that. So that's probably it. It's just the, the, the tailgaters. It's not even on the freeway. It's, it's the like tailgaters on a road that's 45 miles per hour. And, you know, if you want to pass me, go ahead, but don't ride right up on me. That's I think that's probably I, it for me. I end up going slower. Like I'm like, you want to ride on my tail? I'm going to slow down about three miles an hour. You know, Sarah's going to instigate some road rage. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like, look, if you want to sit in my back seat, I'm going to allow you to get closer. <laughs> I just I know I get a little ragey, too. Jenna? Well, I'll say my pet peeves is more for when I'm riding in the car. <laughs> I'll explain because I, I tend to like to ride. Right. So when for work, the photographer usually drives the reporter rides. And then at home, I, I prefer it when my husband drives because I don't like being nitpicked at. And sometimes I feel like he makes little comments and then I get insecure about my driving. So I prefer <laughs> to ride um, whenever possible. But I, I did have an experience recently um, where I was riding with a photographer for Fox 6. I guess this was before the pandemic, so it's not all that recently. But he stopped a lot. Like, like he was hard hitting stops. the... Not, not so much like he didn't use cruise control. It was a lot of like braking, start pressing the accelerator, braking, accelerating, braking. And it was just a lot of back and forth. And we were doing some long drives together, like to Madison and back. And I was really worried that he thought I was a jerk because I didn't speak <laughs> because I was looking out the window, trying not to be ill because of this guy's driving. And then after like six months of this, I got in the car with him and I was like, okay, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I'm not a rude person. I'm not a mean person, but I'm worried you think I am because your driving makes me sick. <laughs> and I explained to him what was happening and he was really nice about it and was like, oh, no one's ever told me that before. And after that, we didn't have the problem anymore at all. You know what I love about that story, Jenna, is that as you the way you tell it sounds like you handled it in a very kind way. And yet I know for you, that's probably as aggressive as you get. Well, you probably heard me talking about it at the station because I'm pretty sure I came back and was like, I don't feel well because so and so was driving. Um, Wait, was there a time when we all worked at the station together? That's strange. I feel like I kind of remind, remember it. And then I realized, like, why don't I just talk to him about it instead of, you know, complaining which would be the adult thing to do. And he handled it really well, which shows that, you know, honesty is always the best policy. Just don't be afraid of hurting someone's feelings, I guess. Um, because I'd rather, you know, make someone aware of it than have them think that I'm a jerk who won't talk to them in the car. Did his, drive, did his driving uh, get better after that? Yeah, it did. Um, I think he just wasn't... You I have just, such a confused look on your it, face, Sarah. Well, the, the whole gas brake thing seems like something that is... Not something that you could just be like, oh, I'll fix that. It's not like... Like it would be an ingrained know. habit? I don't yeah. think he was that aware that he was hitting the brake that often. Okay. okay. So, you know, it makes sense in the city, but when you're on the interstate, <laughs> you don't need to hit the brake all the time. You just, right, just keep right. going. Especially some of those brakes on some of the vehicles are real sensitive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I will say I, I, I prefer to drive rather than ride. So I and part of that's probably maybe it's a control free thing. I like to be in charge of that. So when I'm riding, I am not particularly comfortable if someone else is an aggressive driver or and, and, and there's there's a couple of people I've driven with over the years or ridden with because as reporters, generally, we do ride the passenger seat and the photographer drives. 
and I worked with one in the past, not here in Milwaukee, uh, who would get very close to people and very quickly. And I was worried that there's no time to hit the brakes or if they break in front of us, we're going to die. But this photographer was so confident in his ability to break in any situation that he just rode really close to other people and it made me very uncomfortable. I still to this day am not sure how we didn't crash into someone. Um, but I, unlike you, Jenna, I just ended up keeping that completely to myself and probably uh, let the resentment build inside me <laughs> far more than it should have. <laughs> well, it's not easy to tell someone that you don't like their driving, right? It was not, I, I fretted over it before I said it and then I just decided to go for it. I feel like I've derailed this conversation. But no, but I think if I, if Jenna, I think if, if anyone were to tell me um, that something I was doing was kind of bothering them, I would want it to be you, Jenna, to deliver the news to me. Because honestly, I'd be like, oh, you're right. My driving is really crummy. <laughs> um, but anyway, I think mine will forever be um, people who refuse to use their blinkers. Mm. It doesn't matter. Mm. I, I mm -hmm. will, I will become enraged if I'm waiting to turn and I'm waiting, oh, someone's coming. I can't turn yet. And then they turn down the street I'm on. And ugh, so I do a lot of like ugh, clenching my fist and, you know, and then the kids in the back are like, what's wrong? I'm like, well, this person didn't use their blinker. And how was I supposed to know they were going to turn? Oh, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not a mind reader. <laughs> and then it gets to the point where my kids are like, oh. There should be a national public service campaign that reminds people that turn signals are intended to signal your intention, not what you are already doing. Because so many people who do use them turn them on in the middle of a lane change or after they've begun to turn. And that doesn't do any good. So, yeah, I, I feel your pain there. Yeah. So that's probably my number one. I can't tell you the amount of shame I feel when I realize my turn signal has been on for a very long time. <laughs> is it because you're blasting the music or? <laughs> the Encanto soundtrack is yeah, on. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> every <Kids> day. <laughs> then you just feel so embarrassed. My, my father-in-law, without asking me one day, and I'm not complaining, but he put a Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin license plate holder on my car. And so now whenever I do something not great when driving, I think, oh, this is reflecting poorly on <laughs> UW. <laughs> Tommy Thompson was going to give you a call before he stepped down. <laughs> Get rid of that license plate holder. Well, I think that should uh, wrap up this week's open re or off-the-record segment. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on open record or an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators at fox.com. Jenna, thanks again for joining us this week. Of course. I'm happy to. And as always, thank you to all of the people who make this podcast possible, producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and of course, Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you have not already. You can find it wherever you get fine podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back again next week. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.